Um, so that's one. The family and household is probably the, one of the really good words. And why do we do that? Well, because the language of adoption in the New Testament, that's really the answer, right? Is adoption is big. Now, in today's world, we don't make a habit of, ba- of adopting grown men, for instance, or uh, adopting even like teenage kids, which we should. Um, we're much more interested in, in, in adopting infants, you know, like little babies. Um, but, but in the ancient world, you could adopt anybody of any age into your household. Pretty fun, huh? Uh, and in fact, many Roman emperors became emperor because they got adopted into the household of the, of the future emperor or of the emperor himself, right? It was a way of saying, um, you know, I have naturally born sons, but they're all worthless. I'd like a better one, and I like you, so would you like to join my household, right? And it's, it's like that. Um, and what an image, right, of, of the gospel. That's an image of the gospel. It's, it's uh, I choose you to join my family. That's the gospel, okay? Um, as the body and bride of Christ, Paul speaks in Ephesians chapter 5 about this wonderful union between Christ and his church, um, which is a bodily union, right? Just like a marriage is. What do we, what do we say in, in, the marriage, in the marriage vows? It's kind of weak now, but... I'll give you the older ones. We, we basically give everything that we've got, right? All that I am and all that I have, I honor you, right? Um, is, is how you give the rings in the Anglican rite. But in the, in the older rites, there was language of, with my body, I thee worship. Whoa. Right? And that's kind of like, really? Uh, but that was the language, and the language was that of, I give you all of my body as an act of worship, really and truly. Um, so this, this understanding that, um, that the church is the body and bride of Christ. Um, uh, we belong to him, he belongs to us. Everything that he has is ours, everything that we have is his. That's how it works. That's, that's, and it's actually the language of the marriage covenant, actually, because it's the language of the new covenant. Finally, the temple. Okay, so keep these, keep these in mind. You've got, what is it? You've got family, body and bride, and temple. Okay? All right. Temple language is really important. Um, because something happens in the early part of the church's history that really shakes everything up. And it actually is what Jesus had spoken of earlier, which is that tear down this temple and I'll raise it up in three days, which is he's speaking of his body, right? But he's also speaking of his body because <laughs> the body of Christ is a, is a multifaceted, I don't even know multifaceted really catches it, but um, it has multiple instantiations, I'll put it that way, right? So the body, of, when we speak of the body of Christ, what do we speak of? Well, we speak of Jesus' physical body, right? Born of Mary. We speak of the church and we speak of the Eucharist. And sometimes the lines between those get kind of blurred. And there's a reason for that, right? Because they're supposed to be. That's kind of an image of what salvation is actually like. Um, so when we speak of the church as the temple, it's, it's the place where the Spirit of God dwells. Okay? Um, this is sort of lost on us, but, but in, the, in the ancient, um, in the first Jewish temple, what was, what was the thing that set the temple apart as really almost spookily holy? So you got the Ark of the Covenant, right? That's in the first temple. But it's even more than that. 
cloud of glory and a pillar of fire and all this, like, it's crazy. And then what happens? Temple gets destroyed, right? And they rebuild it. What's there? It's like, it's like, like not as good, right? There's no cloud, there's no ark, there's no fire, there's none of that stuff. Like, there's a lot of blood, that's for sure, but there's not any of that stuff. Um, well, what happens to that temple? Well, it's torn down in AD 70. No brick left on top of another, although down below the ground there were, there were many, many bricks which are still there. Uh, but, but what happens? Judaism becomes less of a temple religion and more of a synagogue religion, actually entirely a synagogue religion. The synagogue becomes the, the center of the life. Um, but Christians maintain that, uh, that we are the temple because we're the, we're the body in which um, Christ's spirit dwells. Okay, so you got that. And, and look, this is made explicit in Scripture by the language that the apostle Peter uses on the day of Pentecost. He quotes from the prophet Joel saying, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, says the Lord. Right? So what's happening is the temple's being poured, the, and you know where they are on this, on that day? They're right on the steps up to the temple on the south side of the temple. It's the only place you could really gather that many people at once, and it was a public kind of place. But they're on the steps up to the temple, and that's where he's preaching that, and, and, um, and that's where the Holy Spirit descends upon uh, the 3,000 who are baptized. And it's a great place to baptize 3,000 people. You know why? Because that's where all the baths are that worshipers going up into the temple would have bathed in prior to entering the temple. So it's, it's all there. Um, but, but what's happening is that God is making a new temple. Um, N.T. Wright says a great deal about this. And, and one of the things that I'd love you to see is that um, though the exile ends after 60, 70, some odd years out of Babylon, uh, the people in Israel... And in in in, uh, in Jerusalem, still believe that they're in exile. In the first century, um, they're exiled because though they've returned home, their God is not with them. Right, their temple is an empty shell. Um, and so, uh, what happens in the gospel is that God returns. He comes back. Um, he comes back to reign as king. He comes back to fill his people with his presence. Um, so that's big, right? And it's bigger than even the first temple, right? Because it's like, well, now here we are. Um, and this is this is kind of made really abundantly. And I'm I'm preaching on this later, so you'll have to forgive me. But, but, you know, how do you consecrate a temple? It's a bloodbath, right? You go around with blood and you sprinkle it on all the walls and all the surfaces and everything. And sometimes you do it once a day, every year. It just depends, right? You, tons of blood, 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 everywhere, okay? Um, what happens in the church is that we don't do that. Why? Because of what Hebrews says, which is that Jesus Christ has entered into the heavenly places to stand there on our behalf, okay, before God. And what ancient Christians did and kind of mimic this, you know, dousing of the temple with blood is they would go around with water, holy water, and would douse the people in that every Sunday. It's called the Asperges. This is like a big thing in medieval liturgy. We don't do it anymore, but there are shadows of it. And today is one of those shadows, right, where we, where we will recite our baptismal affirmations, and then everybody gets a little bit of water. And, and, it's, and it's that. It's to remind you of this baptism into which you are um, joined to Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father. Okay, So no need for blood. We're good. We got that. Okay? But this is this understanding of the church as the temple. 
Um, why is the church called the body of Christ? Oh gosh, I gave, gave away the lead, all right. Why is the church called the body of Christ? The church is called the body of Christ because all who belong to the church are united to Christ as their head and source of life and are united to one another in Christ for mutual love and service to him. Um, this is just to say that Christ is the head of the church, right? For, for Anglican Christians, there is no other head of the church but Christ. Um, Christ is the head uh, and is the source of the church's life. Um, and we are united to one another in Christ for mutual love and service to him. I'll say one more thing about this, which is that um, Christians today, because we, in America, we have this kind of like unbelievably pesky and, and uh, unavoidable sense that what makes us Christians is our mutual agreement, right? It's like somehow or other, you know, it's like, I figured out the same stuff that Catherine figured out. And now we're at the church. Isn't that cool? And I would simply say, maybe, but that's not what's really cool. You know what's really cool? Is that Catherine and I, being so very different, right, are joined together in Christ. Do you see the point? And therefore we are one. Um, it's not our agreement that makes us Christians. It's not our agreement that, put, that makes us members of the church. Um, now, is agreement a good thing? Absolutely it is, uh, but, but it's also not even the, the reason for our agreement is being in Christ, right? Any of it should come from Christ. But there's this sort of idea in, in, in the minds of many American Christians that you sort of arbitrate all of that agreement in advance, and then you're the church, and then you can sort of do your thing. But that's not, that's not actually how it works. Um, what actually happens is we, we are joined to Christ in the church's life, and, and we therefore draw our life from that life. Um, and we draw um, all that we might believe in that way too. Um, what are the marks or characteristics of the church? The Nicene Creed expands upon the Apostles' Creed to list four characteristics of the church. It is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. So the Nicene Creed has this wonderful little phrase, I believe in one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. You know, because we say it on Sundays. Uh, and it's, it's typically, those are called the four marks of the church. So the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And we're going to go through each one. All right, we good so far? Anybody just too tired to, to, to suffer through this? All right, well, well, we'll go. In what sense is the church one? The church is one because all its members form the one body of Christ, having one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, the church is called to embody this unity in all relationships between believers, okay? Break this down a little bit. You know, it's really hard for Christians to believe in one church. When we got a church there, 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 like there's a church over there, there's like churches everywhere. How are we one? Well, it, it really does, I think, hinge on what Paul says in Ephesians. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, one. There's not multiple Christs, not multiple Jesus, not multiple faiths, not, one, not multiple baptisms for that matter. I mean, one of the shocking things that, that I think, well, it's, it's only somewhat shocking because there are exceptions to every rule, but it is amazing that churches have by and large kept baptismal discipline all these 2,000 years. Would you not agree? Like, to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is normal, <laughs> Okay. Being baptized in the name of Jesus only, just strange. That was a strange thing that happened in some Pentecostal camp in the 
tens or something, and somebody stayed up late drinking too much coffee and had a vision, and that was that, right? And, and that's the story, okay? I'm not kidding. That's the story, okay? Um, he woke everybody up, telling them that they all needed to be baptized in the name of Jesus because he, you know, had a vision, okay? Um, but but when, when we enroll members of Christ Church, we enroll you based on you turning in your baptism record. That's it. Why? Because that's the membership vehicle, is baptism, okay? Um, having said that, um, I don't want to give the impression that the church's unity is a kind of minimal unity because our unity is in whom? In Jesus, right? And though there may be vast disagreement among Christians, though there may be vast conflict among Christians, our unity is in Jesus, and, and he is not divided. I love what Paul says. Is Christ divided to the, to the Corinthians as they have their little factions and things, uh, and they're very proud of their factions? And, and he just asks them, is Christ divided? And the answer is no. Um, so just something to keep in mind. I, I do believe the church is one. I also believe the church is called to, to deeper unity um, and deeply called to that unity. Um, the church is called to embody this unity in, rela- in all relationships between believers. I will also tell you that many of our divisions, our sad divisions, are, are really based in a kind of pride that really has no place in the Christian life. And so we have to enter into um, these things with humility, which is really hard to do when you think you're right. Um, but I would actually say that one of the things that we really need to do today is, is to um, receive gifts from the church as what they are, they're gifts. So this will often happen with people that join Christ Church and they say, I grew up Baptist and I'm, I loved the way I grew up. Right? That's a, that's a normal experience, right? I love the way I grew up. It was, and, and to grow up Baptist now is very different from, it was, from what it was in the 80s and 90s, okay? I'll just tell you that. Um, as somebody who grew up half Baptist or kind of like that, it felt like it uh, <laughs> during those days, uh, I could just tell you it was very different back then. Um, and there's a lot to love, actually. Uh, but what I would say is that there are lots of gifts to be received even now, and there are a lot of gifts to be given. And so when people come in and they say, well, how do I think about that old, that, 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 the old way that I was raised? I say, give thanks to God for it. I mean, it's a great gift. Um, but, but the question now is, how are you going to give those gifts to other Christians, and how are you going to uh, receive more gifts? That's, that's a big question uh, that, I, that I just sort of put in front of you. Um, but these relationships of unity are really important. Um, and, and I actually think we're in a place of, of really, uh, well, Put it this way, if, if you believe what Philip Jenkins says over at Baylor, when he's at Baylor, um, we're at a time of global uh, realignment um, where Christians are realigning one with another. And it means that, um, well, a lot of things that we used to take for granted are not quite so important anymore. And a lot of things that we used to think are really key uh, to our Christian life are not that important anymore. We live in a very mobile society. We live in a society where um, uh, kind of denominational identity isn't what it used to be, right? So um, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and it was always like, you know, I was so proud of being an Episcopalian. And I would say, well, do you, you know, what, is that, what does it mean? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, literally, like, I don't know what that means. Um, uh, but the, 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 uh, the reality is that these things no longer matter as much as they used to. Um, and what that's calling people to is to a more, um, a more full union. Um, it also means that those who have sort of chased the, the money trails of um, modernizing the faith um, 
are, are now, they have no reason to do anything, right? So, you know, this is the reality too, is like those who would re-envision Christian believing or those who would, who would um, sort of, uh, you know, and there are lots of ways to do this, right? And you hear a lot about this now in terms of deconstruction, but, but the, the big thing that happens in deconstruction is not that you become sort of a nice Christian who doesn't believe all the hateful things you used to believe. What does it mean usually? It means you don't do anything anymore. You're done. You're over. You're through, right? And, and good for them, right? Because at least they're consistent. Right? And so that's, but what's that causing? It's causing a, it's causing a realignment. Um, one of the things we have to recognize about deconstruction is that deconstruction not only applies to those who are, who are deconstructing Christian believing and leaving the church, it also applies to those who are, in a sense, feeling called to reimagine their Christian believing within a new context, within a new way of living out that Christian life. I mean, that could be super exciting, believe me, I know it. Um, but, but you kind of have to temper that a bit by understanding that something big is going on in the church today, and I, and I can't describe it adequately, but just to say that that's going on. Um, and the, church, the church's essential unity, I think, is actually being exposed, which is cool, uh, because it for a long time had not been. All right, good? Okay, where, where does the church get her unity? From Jesus, right? <laughs> Jesus is one, so we are one. Okay, we are one body. He doesn't have multiple bodies, he has one. Okay. Um, and, and sometimes that just has to be the bare statement that it is, right? Just leave it at that. All right, why is the church called holy? The church is holy because the Holy Spirit indwells it and sanctifies its members, setting them apart to God in Christ and calling them to moral and spiritual holiness of life. Okay, so why is the church holy? Because we're holy? <laughs> Like, personally? No. Look, if there was a perfect church, I'd join it and I'd mess it up, okay? Um, you know, the holiness of the church is not in that her members are so holy, right, by, by their personal gravitas. It's because her members are holy because of whom? Jesus, working through his Holy Spirit, makes the church holy. And, and in fact, the, the, the best vision of that is going to be seen today, right, where the church receives three new members through baptism, and they are made holy through the washing of water with the word. That's what happens. Um, they enter into life in Christ. They receive the Holy Spirit. All of that happens, okay? Um, and that's exactly what's said here. The Holy Spirit dwells in it and sanctifies its members, setting them apart to God in Christ and calling them to moral and spiritual holiness of life. Well, how do we know the Holy Spirit dwells all those who are baptized? Well, because that's what Peter says on the day of Pentecost. When they're cut to the heart, right, they say, what do we do? And he says, be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. Um, and in fact, later in the Acts of the Apostles, there are those who have been baptized but didn't receive the Holy Spirit, and the apostles have to lay hands on them so that they will receive the Holy Spirit. Like, because why? It's really simple. Because that's not supposed to happen, right? And, it, and it's probably not that they didn't receive the Holy Spirit because they just say, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. Um, it appears that somebody got away too fast and started doing mission throughout the world and, and you know, doing all those things. Um, but that's, that's the basis of it is we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit, set apart to God in Christ. It is on that basis that we're called to moral and spiritual holiness of life. Okay, so let me get something really straight for you. I think a lot of people think, Here's, I'm going to get super morally holy, like get everything right. 
Okay? And then I'll be full of the Holy Spirit, and then I'll be able to, you know, be really a, a real Christian. Okay? And most of us sort of say, well, that was a disaster. What do we do now? Well, keep trying. It'll probably work eventually. It's like, well, no, that's not it. And in fact, that's just heresy. That's just Pelagianism in a different form. It's like, hey, you know, if you think that you can do it by your own, on your own power, you're, you, are, you are forgetting that at the very center of the gospel is you can't, okay? You can't do it, um, and the Holy Spirit has to do it. And so um, it's on the basis of being set apart in Christ by the Holy Spirit that we pursue moral and spiritual holiness. It's why we do. Um, and so uh, I, I will say that, um, you know, a, a Christian who is actively engaging in sin is a contradiction, but they're not a contradiction to their aspirations, they're a contradiction to who they are, okay? Um, a, a Christian who doesn't pray is a contradiction. Of course, it's just, that's just the truth, right? Um, so there you go. Um, it's, holiness is so essential, um, but it is not the reason that the church is holy. <laughs> um, our holiness is derived from the holiness that we share in the life of Christ. Okay, by his Holy Spirit. Shall we move on? Now to the scandalous word. Here we go. All right. <laughs> it's probably not scandalizing many of you, but here it is. Why is the church called Catholic? The church is called Catholic according to the whole because it keeps the whole faith it has received from the Lord in continuity with the whole church in all times and places. Some people will often translate this word Catholic as something like universal. And I think universal, um, though uh, probably a, a fairly good translation of the word Catholic, is not actually what the word means. Uh, kataholos is the word. It means according to the whole. Um, that's actually a really simple translation, but I think it is more meaningful because it doesn't simply say like, oh, well, it's kind of like everybody and everything and all throughout the universe, blah, blah, blah. We are the world. We are the children. Okay, fine, whatever. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> Catholic in the best sense of the word, in the, most, in the most clear sense of the word, in the historic sense of the word means according to the whole. And that means the whole throughout time, the whole throughout geographic space, and the whole throughout um, the church's practice, okay? Um, according to the whole. And that word was used as, the, as a word to differentiate from heretics. So whereas a heretic, is, you know what a heretic, you've been talking about heresy in the process fellows. What does it mean? What does heresy mean? Well, not orthodox, but it has, a, it has like an actual meaning to the word, right? Yeah, grasping or more like, more like self-thinking, right? It's, it's kind of all on me to figure it out, okay? Um, and that's, that's probably the best way to put it. Um, I've probably told you the story before if I have, you know, pardon me, but um, my, my mentor as a young priest was an Oxford PhD, studied, you know, studied at Keeble College, and you know, had the, he was an amazing guy. And um, I, he was once asking me, well, you know, how's, how's it going? And I said, well, I'm, I'm having a bit of a struggle, you know. I'm, I'm newly married, newly ordained, I'm preaching on Sundays, and I'm afraid I'm saying something that's just completely wrong. Like, I have, I'm filled with dread that I'm just saying something that's just wrong. <laughs> and he's, he says, you mean like heresy? And I said, yes, exactly like heresy. And he said, oh, I wouldn't worry about that. I said, why? He's like, you're not smart enough. <laughs> I said, oh, that's, that's, very, that's very helpful. <laughs> but, 
But really, to, to come up with a new heresy, is really, you have to be really smart. I mean, I and I don't even think there's any room for that, right? Because it's just so, uh, you know, all the bases have been covered already. Um, there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to this. Uh, but to be Catholic means that you reject all that. Right? You reject all the innovations, all the kind of, um, you know, localized ideas. Um, and and the, probably the greatest... Uh, the greatest thought on this comes from a guy named Vincent of Lorraine, who is a who is a he calls himself the the Peregrinus. He's he's a he's a pilgrim, and he travels throughout the church. And what he says is that is to be considered Catholic, which is held always, everywhere, and by all. So always is this has always been believed by Christians throughout the centuries. Okay, so there's a good one. This is writing four about the mid fifth century. Okay, he says always. So we're. You know, it goes all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the apostles. So there's a good one, right? That gives you a kind of basis for it. Um, and you might say, but what about the Trinity? It's like Christians have believed in the divinity of all three persons of the Trinity forever, right? I'll just say that. Um, these are not kind of new doctrines that arise. Otherwise, what would someone say? This is a new doctrine. It can't be accepted. We're changing. We're changing. We can't do that, right? But nobody says that. Um, in fact, everybody claims like what they've been holding is the teaching that's gone back the whole time. Or they just say, well, I've been reading, I've been reading my Bible lately and I don't agree, right? So that happens too. Always, everywhere. So everywhere refers to geography. So it's what's, what's happening throughout the, what, what's believed in the whole church throughout the whole world. And uh, now geography is not a really great way to look at that, but in the ancient world it definitely was because you would say, well, you know, uh, the Milanese do this, and, uh, and the Syrians do this, so those can't really be considered Catholic, those little practices that are different place to place. But what do they do? This, 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 this. Like they share that in common. Okay, so that's, that's a great example of it. Um, and by all means that, um, that, that everyone does it. Okay, everyone does it, everyone believes it, um, so there's unanimity involved. Um, now, of course, unanimity is thrown to the, thrown to the, it's, it's difficult when there's, when there's disagreement, right? You say, well, how can, how can this be held that way? But all is much more of a sense of, um, in a sense, majority rules, actually. Um, that's not putting it too, too brashly at all. Majority actually does rule because there's, a, there's an understanding that the, um, and I, if I'm getting in the weeds here, just let me know. Um, there's a phrase in Latin called the, the consensus fidelium. So it's the consensus of the faithful drives doctrine. And we know that, right? Because look, the moment, the, the moment that you start to say, well, we all know that Jesus was raised from the dead, but, but, but what if he wasn't? Okay, well, you know, it, it shouldn't shock anybody that the moment you start to believe that, you start to just kind of say, well... I know that I shouldn't probably take hits of LSD, but what if I did? And then you do it, right? And then there's all these other things that happen, right? And, and license is a, is a crazy thing because the moment you open those things up, lots of things start to happen. And, and you think I'm joking? No, I'm talking about a bishop. Okay, so, so, so this was in the 60s, a bishop, you know, said, well, what if the resurrection didn't happen? And then he was doing LSD. I mean, it's like, it, it wasn't far off, right? Um, because this is how it works. You, you let go of things, and then you think, well, everything's up for reappraisal. Everything's up for, for re-envisioning, 
and then you're then you're stuck in a in a weird in a weird world. Um, so that unanimity of of doctrine actually matters because what we say is that the faithful uh, say this over and over and over again repeatedly, and what do we find? Oh, that's true. <laughs> like that's that's what's Catholic in the deepest sense of the word. Okay, now note what I didn't say in describing the word Catholic because I'm an Anglican. Nothing about the Pope, nothing about a magisterium, nothing about being in jurisdictions of various kinds, right? Because that's not at the heart of the word Catholic. It just isn't. Um, so, you know, Anglicans expressly reject the idea that you have to be in this communion or that in order to be Catholic, or that you have to be under this bishop or that bishop in order to be Catholic. Um, Catholicity derives from who we are as Christians, okay? I'm just going to say that really strongly. Okay, all good? All right. Now, we don't contest that, right? So maybe, maybe, you know, they, and we say, like, I would say, no, yeah, they are. But, but it's insofar as they're in, in accord with what is Catholic, right? Um, and that, that actually transcends them, too. Um, although, I will just tell you that I live in, in some manner of fear that uh, potentially, um, you know, and we all should, right? I mean, this is, this is a normal thing. We should, we should live in some manner of fear that we're losing our grasp on Catholicity, right? Um, I think that's a really important thing to sort of live in a kind of terror of, is you sort of say, like, in what ways am I just doing this because I think I'm right, and I like to be right, and I like to be in command, and I, and I don't really like authority, and I really want to fly away from it. Well, here's the answer to that question, and that, qu that quandary is, pay some attention to it, right? Don't let it go. Uh, think about it. Pray about it. All those things are important. Okay. Why is the church called apostolic? An apostle is one who is sent. The church is called apostolic because it holds the faith of the first apostles sent by Christ. In continuity with them, the church is likewise sent by Christ to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples throughout the whole world. This word is so important, right? Um, Brian Sears tells me, because this is his entire course of study with the history department at, at Baylor, about the new apostolic movement. And it's kind of like this just group of people that are like, we have apostles now, isn't that cool? And, and whatever the apostle says is true, and we have to follow it, no matter how weird or how crazy, it's like we have to follow it. Um, well, okay, let, that's not what we mean by apostolic, okay? Um, apostolic means that the church proclaims the faith um, in continuity with the apostles. Now, what is an apostle? Well, the, the Greek word apostolos is actually the word, um, it's kind of akin to, to the word for angel, angelos, right? It's, but it is actually much more of a messenger, not a heavenly messenger, but a messenger, one who's sent with a message. Now, the best way that I can describe this is exactly as we use a similar word today, apostle, posta, the post office, okay? Now, Go, just hang with me for a bit because it's all there, okay? Um, when I put a letter in the mail, what is the post office supposed to do with that? <laughs> Deliver it, <laughs> okay? Now, what if I find out that some guy in the post office is opening the mail and changing my letters? It's a federal crime, that's right. It's called mail fraud, and you'll wind up in the federal penitentiary in some you know, swamp in Florida for that. And rightly so, right? Because, because that's what it is. Uh, look, there's something sacred about messages, right? I don't even want to ask the army. You know, what happens when you miscommunicate uh, an order? 
It's, it's not good, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> you know, these miscommunications are a problem, right? And, um, and, and this becomes a, is a major issue. Um, what is the job of an apostle? To kind of riff on the Christian faith and sort of read Scripture in new and novel ways? Not at all. It's to be passed, right? Passed, received. And Paul uses this language. Actually, the, the, the word apostle is actually tied up in the language of tradition um, because, look, Paul uses this language uh, consistently. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. So he's using this language of delivering and receiving, receiving and delivering. And in fact, that actually is the language that the church fathers use with regard to the, to the Apostles' Creed. Um, it's, okay, the week before you're baptized, the bishop comes up and says, now, we've not taught you this before, and we all need to be very quiet because somebody might be listening outside the walls, but I'm going to tell you what the symbol of our faith is, and I'm going to line out to you the Apostles' Creed, and I want you to memorize it as quickly as possible. And when you go home, this is what Ambrose does, Ambrose says, when you go home, don't recite it for, out loud because somebody might hear it. Recite it to yourself under your breath. Recite it in your memory. I'm going to deliver it to you. Okay, see this? I'm going to deliver it to you. You're going to receive it. And then in a week when you come to be baptized, you're going to deliver it back. And this is the language that he's using. Um, and in fact, Ambrose has this wonderful uh, sermon on the Apostles' Creed. And it's entirely wrong, but he, you know, the, the sentiment is right, right? So he says, hey, look, you know, the Apostles' Creed has 12 clauses. Who, where, where did those 12 clauses come from? Well, the 12 apostles. They each put in one phrase of the creed. And what they're doing is they're entering into a kind of corporate agreement, like a corporate structure, like a stock company. So are the stockholders in a company liable for their part or for the whole? The whole. So he's riffing on these phrases of like what the word Catholic means, what the word apostle means, um, that you're receiving, you deliver it back. And he says, basically, when you receive the creed, you become responsible for the whole of it to maintain it whole. Does that make sense? Okay. So all of this is to say that um, Christians in the ancient world did not believe they had the prerogative to sort of say, oh, I've been reading through this creed, and I, I think I'm about reconciled to like 80% of it. Is that enough to be baptized? And, and, like, <laughs> and they'd say, are you insane, right? Like, that's not how this works. Like, you receive it whole, and you give it back whole, and you pass it on to others whole. Like, otherwise, no cake for you. <laughs> right? That's it. It's, that's, it's all there, right? And I think there's, there's kind of this idea that, that people can just sort of negotiate with Christian believing these days in ways that they might say, well, I really, I'm not really sure I'm on board with that. You know, that, it seems a little bit, you know, not really, not really very believable. It's like, well, I think a lot of that is that we've just, we've just wound up being a little bit too open about how things can really be, and we just need to be more definitive. And that's what we're doing right here. We're saying, let's do catechesis. Like, catechesis is saying, hey, this is who we are. Um, instead of saying, well, there's like a boundary, but it's sort of uh, not really clear, and I don't know, maybe you could be on this side or that side. It really doesn't matter. You know, all that matters is that you're here. Please be here, you know, and, and that's that. I mean, I was, I was awakened to this several years ago when I did a survey of some friends, and I said, well, you know, how do people join your church? 
Like, how do they get on the list, the membership list? What I really actually found out is that most people, they write a check, and the church secretary lifts the address off the check and the phone number off the check and puts that in the membership rolls, and that's it. That's really sad. So I said, it's going to be different at Christ Church. And what we've said is we're going to say, look, you turn in your baptism, you go to catechesis. If you want to be confirmed, you've got to go through catechesis. If you want to serve leading a ministry, you've got to go through catechesis. Like, we're just really clear about that um, because we want there to be at least, look, I recognize that not everyone is going to give rational assent to everything in the catechism, okay? I understand that. But I also understand that you're going to, ins- that you're going to assent to it insofar as you decide I'm not going to rebel against it, Right? I'm, if I'm going to be here, I'm, I'm going to understand that that's the way things are at this church, and I'm not going to rock the boat, and that's it, um, because that's how it works. Um, we're not Baptists. You know, you can't have a sort of vote by the church and say, soul competency, and now I'm going to force my soul competency on your soul competency, and, you know, all that. No, it just doesn't, no, that doesn't happen, right? Parish churches can't, can't sit down and vote on doctrine. A vestry can't vote on doctrine, okay? Um, I've actually, you know, I've been, in, I've been in the room when there have been some like vestries that have said, we want to put out a doctrinal statement. And the, the rector will say, well, we could do that, but uh, I'm going to write it. <laughs> but, but I just say, like, in vestry meetings, I, I, I continually say, no, it's my job to teach, and we're not going to make decisions about that because that's already been decided. Or I will ask the bishop. You know, it's really just that simple. Um, because I received, and I deliver, and that's, that's my role. Um, I don't have any prerogative over the faith at all, none. Okay, we clear there? All right, it's on that basis that the church is sent out into the world, right? I want you to really notice this in Scripture. Um, What Jesus says to the apostles is, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. Now, there's a lot more going on in that text than, than I even want to say, but, but the reality of it is that Jesus is saying, in, according, in accord with the same way in which I was sent, or in, just as I was sent into the world, I send you. So how is Jesus sent into the world? Think about his baptism. The Holy Spirit sends on him like a dove. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What? Listen to him. So how are Christians sent into the world? As the children of God, given the gift of his Holy Spirit, and we actually gain a listening, we gain a, we gain a hearing because of that. Um, I can tell you that, uh, that uh, the days in which the church, I don't even think they ever existed, but, but there, was a, there was a time in which everybody thought, oh, we'll just sort of rationally argue with everyone and argue them into conversion. It's like, well, that's definitely not happening now, and I don't think it really ever happened at all. Um, the reality of it is that, that uh, the greatest hermeneutic of the gospel is Christians who actually believe this stuff and live by it. That's the reality of it. Um, I don't know of anybody who's really converted outside of actually knowing Christians who took this stuff seriously, like who really did it. So... There's your, there's your sent. Uh, you know, likewise, sent by the Christ to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Like, what is a disciple? One who believes? Okay. Let me, let me break you a little bit of this. Jerry Kramer, who's a missionary that's associated with us, he, he has broken me of my, my understanding of what a disciple is. I always thought a disciple was just some sort of like, 
oh, you're just one who's like learning the faith or you're like, you're just, you're a good Christian. He's like, no, a disciple doesn't have to believe anything. All a disciple has to do is just be learning. So we, we went and visited in northern Iraq and, and met disciples who were Muslims. Like, like, why? Because they were studying Scripture with Christians. So they're disciples. And the reality is they know more than a lot more than a lot of American Christians, and they're still Muslims, right? Um, so it's something just to kind of like whet your appetite for that. When, when Jesus says, go out of the world and make disciples, um, he's, actually, he's actually saying, do what I did to you. Okay. Um, invite people into your life. Teach them. Um, uh, show them the way. Um, he also says, teaching them to obey all that I command you, right? So teaching obedience is a big part of making disciples. Um, and then what? He baptized them. Um, so this is, this is how a Christian mission goes. Um, all right, we have no more time. So <laughs> I'm just going to wrap it up because I, I promised uh, our senior warden that I would be brief. So are there questions about all this? The one holy Catholic and apostolic marks of the church. Um, these are really important. You know, I, I do want to say one more thing, which is that um, Anglicans are not in the position ever of casting aspersions upon other churches, which is a really kind of um, an odd place to be. We can certainly proclaim the truth, but there's not much sense in saying, oh, well, unlike these people over here who are no, no, it doesn't quite work that way. So if you've heard anything uncharitable in anything I've said, um, I poke fun merely to instruct. Uh, but um, the reality of it is that... that uh, you know, it, it is not uh, mean to differentiate. It's not mean to speak the truth. Um, it's not mean to say how these things actually work. Um, it's, and it's not mean-spirited. Um, although I have taught this session and people are like, well, what about this and what about that? Are my, are my friends going to hell? And it's like, oh gosh. <laughs> no, no, that's not what I mean to say at all. I, um, I, think, I think that uh, Anglicanism has a really wonderful vocation within the church today, which is to... Um, as messy as it is, and as frustrating as it can be, um, to really show forth this, this, this biblical faith um, to the world and to other Christians. Um, that's not merely biblical, but is fully biblical. It's not merely kind of biblical, but maybe not Catholic, but is biblical and Catholic. Um, and so I want you to really see that, that, that what we do on a Sunday is Catholic in the deepest sense of the word. I mean. My vision for, uh, for churches that, that we plant and that are in our communion is, is this, that somebody might say, walking through the doors, like, where's the nearest Catholic church? And I just say, you're right here, buddy. Like, <laughs> that's what I want to say. And I want to say it without any kind of, um, you know, without being farcical at all. I want to say, no, you're right here. This is it. Um, so hear my heart in that. Thank you. <laughs>